Welcome back to Atomic Hobo. This is part two of the episode on Project Sunshine. So let's have a quick recap on what that project was. In order to find out what affects nuclear tests, the plentiful nuclear tests of the 1950s, were having on the human body, scientists needed to study teeth and bones, for that is where the so-called bone-seeking elements of nuclear fallout would gather. The teeth and bones of babies and children were particularly of use to the scientists, as their little bodies are growing and so absorb more of the stuff. Now, it's easy enough to get access to baby teeth for scientific research. They fall out painlessly and innocently, and can easily be popped in an envelope and sent off to the lab. You can even make it seem like an adventure. Hey kids, donate your teeth and get involved in science. But the bones of babies and children are harder to obtain, as, of course, you would need the child in question to be deceased. And you would then need to approach bereaved parents to ask if you could perhaps slice off a limb or cut off a head, then grind it up and send it away. A horrible prospect, of course and one which doesn't come softened and soothed with the knowledge that the bone donation will be immediately helping other little kids to live. You can have that comfort with the very noble gesture of organ donation, but it's of course distinctly lacking with bone donation where it doesn't bestow life on a sick kid, it just gets ground up and sent away for some big anonymous scientific study. So yes, scientists knew it was going to be hugely difficult to gather the bones of dead babies. Baby teeth, easy peasy. Baby bones, tricky. And so Project Sunshine was formed in America back in 1953. A series of secret scientific studies to trace the impact of nuclear tests, specifically their fallout, on the human body. The project was launched by the United States Atomic Energy Commission, and we talked in the last episode of how one of their chiefs, Dr Willard Libby, known as Wild Bill, recognised the difficulty of obtaining bone samples, and so he secretly told his staff, if anybody knows how to do a good job of body snatching, they will really be serving their country. And, as mentioned previously, it's not easy to find a plentiful supply of children's bones because in the latter half of the 20th century in the West, children weren't dying as frequently as they previously did. So Project Sunshine sought bones from other countries too, including Canada, Australia and Britain. As we said, the project was started by the Atomic Energy Commission, an American government body formed after the war to direct the peacetime use of nuclear energy. Trinity, Hiroshima and Nagasaki had just happened, the war was over, and Truman decided to remove nuclear technology from the military and place it under civilian control. We should no longer associate nuclear technology simply with bombs and war and horror. Instead, let's look also at its peacetime uses, 
That was the thinking here. Let's start associating it with positive things. Cheap electricity, industrial progress and medical advances. Sure, we're still making a hell of a lot of nukes, but hey, look over there. Nice things too. But as we know, any optimistic plans formed after the war to take the atom forth into peaceful use was hampered by the indecently quick arrival of the Cold War. And so the lion's share of the new commission's work would always be devoted to nuclear weapons and nuclear testing. Now, do we detect a conflict of interest here? The people who were in charge of finding out whether nuclear tests are hurting us were the same people in charge of making the nukes and testing them. It's like putting Coca-Cola in charge of a study to find out if sugar rots teeth. Nonetheless, they launched Project Sunshine to try and gather teeth and bone to find out how much nuclear fallout, particularly strontium-90, was working its way into the human body. The Atomic Energy Commission teamed up with the RAND Corporation for the project, and they decided that they would use the term sunshine unit as their measuring unit of strontium-90. But when they told a government committee about this, the Democratic representative Chet Holyfield was concerned. He said, quote, The word sunshine has a cheery note to it. And I was just wondering if we were allowing, let us say, propaganda to creep into our scientific terminology. But our old friend Wild Bill defended the use of sunshine unit and said no propaganda was intended. And he said it simply made sense to use sunshine unit as a measuring term for Project Sunshine. Seems logical, you might think. But no, I'm with Chet. It sounds like straight propaganda. And so the sunshine unit was dropped from the project. But the commission and various nuclear scientists continued to downplay the risk of fallout. Because, of course, they wanted to keep developing weapons. And that meant carrying on testing those weapons. In terms of downplaying the risks, there was the simple fact that the Commission spoke in their correspondence of a safe level of radiation. But it had been shown that there is simply no such thing as a safe level. Every exposure to radiation, no matter how tiny, inflicts some level of damage. You can maybe speak of a tolerable level, but certainly there's no such thing as a safe level. In 1955, the Atomic Energy Commission said the amount of radiation people have so far been exposed to from atomic tests is still not important as a genetic hazard. But, as the author Norman Moss says, this is not a statement of fact. It's a value judgment. It depends what you regard as important. This is from Norman Moss's excellent book, Men Who Play God. And he goes on to say that Edward Teller, the father of the H-bomb, was likewise downplaying the risks, saying that radiation from fallout was only 5% of the natural radiation from cosmic rays, 
and was less than the difference between radiation at sea level and that found at Denver, Colorado, which is at an altitude of 5,000 feet. If you're also scared of radiation, he implied, then you should be encouraging people to flee Denver. He then went even further in his cheeky suggestions. Quoting from the book here, The chances of deformed birth are reduced, he said, if the sperm, and hence the reproductive organs, are kept cool. You could do more to cut down the number of deformities by insisting that all men wear kilts than by stopping nuclear tests. This is just so arrogant, is it not? The scientists mocking the fears of us little people. If you're so scared, then why are you living in Denver? Why aren't you running about in a kilt? You clearly don't understand radiation. And perhaps it was that same ivory-towered arrogance that made it easier for Project Sunshine to take children's bones without daring to seek the parents' consent. It was only after the Cold War that we learned that no parental consent had been sought. The scientists wanted the bones, so they took the bones. I suppose they viewed the the dead child as just just a body, just a, a resource. A resource that we can use, which will, so they argued, help America, help the West, by understanding fallout and developing better weapons. The body is simply a resource lying cold on a table. So why get bogged down in consent and seeking permission from people who will be tearful and emotional and grieving and who will need explanations and, God, these hicks, these idiots, these these ordinary people, they probably won't understand our, our great scientific quest. So just go for it. Cut out the middleman, I suppose, the, the tearful, pesky middleman. But yes, the truth came out. And it came out gradually. So, in 1994, America formed the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments to dig back into the Cold War archives and find out what really went on. Its report was finally released in 1995, but there had been rumblings prior to this that Cold War America had been indulging in some deeply sinister human radiation experiments on the dead and the living. And the crucial thing throughout was it was done without patient's knowledge or consent. That may seem shocking to us, but the New York Times quoted Alexander Capron, a professor of law and medicine in 1994, who said, quote, This was not unusual in the 1950s and 60s. At that time, The practice seemed to be to regard medical waste as belonging to the doctors who had possession of it. And there was no thought this would be a concern of the patients or their families. And he said this practice wasn't unique to Project Sunshine. It was happening across many fields of medical research. So let's dip into America's horrible history of human radiation experiments. Some of it is quite unbelievable. And yet, I'm reminded again and again, when you're reading about nuclear history, about the Cold War, 
There are so many aspects of it that make you shudder, make you wince, make you think, I don't believe this, like Victor Meldrew. Then you remind yourself, why on earth not? Truth is always stranger than fiction. So going back to 1986, it was revealed that plutonium injections had been administered to 18 hospital patients between 1945 and 1947. Even so, that didn't really break into a spectacular story until far later, in 1993, when the Albuquerque Tribune, whose journalist Eileen Welsham, uncovered the names of the people who had been experimented upon. She went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for her journalism on the plutonium scandal and wrote a book about it called The Plutonium Files. In these hideous experiments, patients were secretly injected to see how much plutonium the human body could take, how much it would retain and how much it would excrete. The quest was to find that impossible safe level of exposure. Speaking in the 90s, the Energy Secretary, Hazel O'Leary, said these plutonium experiments were, quote, worthy of Nazi Germany. And one of the scientists involved in the experiments noted that they had, quote, a little of the Buchenwald touch. The first person to be given these secret plutonium injections was Ebb Cade, a 53-year-old black man, a builder who was working on a construction site in Tennessee for the Manhattan Project. He was in a car accident on his way to work on 23rd of March, 1945, and was rushed to hospital with several nasty fractures. The doctors decided that, having always been in good health, he was a suitable candidate, and so they injected him with plutonium, without his knowledge, and, to make it even worse, they did not treat his fractures until the plutonium had been given a chance to settle in his body to work its way into his bones. Bones again, it's always the bones in these radiation experiments. It's incredible to believe this happened, lying there in a modern American hospital with untreated fractures being injected with plutonium. This might help explain why the plutonium injection story only became huge when the Albuquerque Tribune revealed the names and backstories of the 18 victims. Without names and faces and angry relatives, it's perhaps too monstrous and unbelievable. But once the horror was pinned to ordinary Americans with grieving families, it could become real. So Mr Cade is lying in hospital in Tennessee with his several untreated fractures, And the doctors took samples of his excretions to test them for plutonium, to see how much was being retained or rejected by the body. Finally, on 15th of April, 23 days after the crash, they got round to fixing his bone fractures, but only after helping themselves to samples of the bone. They also pulled some of his teeth, again, without telling him why. We have to wonder if his race and class had much to do with this. Would they have tried this trick on some 
rich white bloke from Manhattan. Indeed, there was such contempt for the people who, over the course of the Cold War, claimed to have been subject to secret radiation experiments. So much so that the US Department of Energy called them, collectively, the crazies. Again, we turn to Hazel O'Leary, the energy secretary under Clinton, who brought all of these secret Cold War archives into the light. She said, quote, I thought that if just 10% of what the so-called crazies were saying was true, I was working for an evil agency. Another victim of the plutonium tests, and another who could be conveniently dismissed as crazy, was a railway worker called Elmer Allen. He injured his knee on the railway in California in 1946. It stubbornly refused to heal, and so doctors suggested he might have bone cancer. Eventually, his leg was amputated. But before it was cut off, yep, you guessed it, doctors injected the leg with plutonium. Mr. Allen lived for another 44 years, but uh, the rest of his life was plagued by alcoholism and terrible mental health problems. In fact, when the truth had all come out in 1993, one local paper, the Santa Fe New Mexican, carried the headline, Finally, daughter knows why her father was a crazy man. Crazy man given in quotes in the headline. The article says, More than two years have passed since Elmer Allen died, and it has taken his daughter, Elmerine Whitfield, that long to cry. She did it for the first time a week ago when, she said, the reason for her father's alcoholic binges and crazy babblings became clear. He had been used as a, quote, guinea pig in a secret government experiment. His daughter goes on to remember life in their small Texas town where, quote, everyone knew everyone and everybody thought he was crazy. The article also says Elmer Allen had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic after claiming he had been involved in a secret government experiment. But it later transpired that, of course, he was telling the truth. The article ends with his daughter saying, quote, You can't fathom this. I think it's the most heinous thing that's been done to anyone in the United States of America. It sounds like a movie. They took his manhood away. Everybody thought that my father was a crazy man. If we turn to the book Plutopia by Kate Brown, she tells us that radiation experiments on humans had been going on since before World War II. Before the bomb, of course, had even been created. Most significant, she says, were those carried out in the state asylum in Elgin, Illinois, quote, where doctors fed radium-226 to 33 unwitting patients, all of whom died of cancer in subsequent decades. So this all gathered pace, of course, in the Cold War, spurred on by weapons testing and all the money which was being put towards weapons testing. 
I'm not saying, of course, that there shouldn't be weapons testing, just that if you're going to inject someone with poison, you should at least make sure they are aware of the risks. It's all such a horror. Taking people's bodies, cutting bits, slicing bits, shaving bone, pulling teeth, grinding the legs of dead babies into ash, all without consent. Done instead with, yes, what I see as contempt. I see such contempt here for ordinary people. The scientists and the doctors not deigning to seek permission or to explain what was happening. Why bother? They won't understand. Or they'll be too blinded by fear or by grief. Churned up by emotion, leaving no room for reason. These sentimental, flimsy creatures. These little men and weeping women. How can they understand our great work? And why should their refusal be allowed to stand in its way? And that reminds me of the nuclear bomb itself. (laughs) It has contempt for us. It is so much bigger and powerful than us. It is awesome. It is potentially world-ending. And what can us little, frightened, flimsy people do to control it? We can march and protest against it. We can campaign for arms reduction. We can make films and write books and do podcasts about it, spreading awareness. We can introduce better safety measures around command and control. But we can't stop it. We can't make the bomb go away. There will never be global nuclear disarmament. There's nothing we can do except make small changes and little improvements here and there. Some treaties, some agreements, some campaigns... But really, all we are doing every day is hoping that it will all be okay. We are crossing our fingers and praying our luck holds. I think we will end it there. A reminder of the books that I've mentioned in this episode. The Plutonium Files by Eileen Wilson. Plutopia by Kate Brown. And Men Who Play God by Norman Moss. And a reminder for those who have access to the BBC that my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, will be going out on Radio 4 next week as the book of the week. And I'm so happy and so honoured by that. So that's starting Monday, 24th July, and you can also get it uh, on Catch Up on the BBC Sounds app or through iPlayer. And let me welcome and thank my newest patron, Mary. And at the same time, apologise for my absence. I know the podcast has been silent for a few weeks. I have been snowed under and a bit battered by some things that have been happening here. But touch wood, everything seems to be okay now. So apologies for the silence and thank you for sticking with me. 